0: May they be written on our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, uh, one of my wife's favorite sayings is, is that if you love someone or something, set it free. If it comes back, it was always and will be yours. If it never returns, it was never yours to begin with. And if it just uh, sits in your living room, messes up your stuff, eats your food, uses your telephone, takes your money, and never behaves as if you actually set it free in the first place, you either married it or gave it birth to it. (laughs) I'd like to talk this morning about love and prayer. This is uh, the second in our series on prayer, is the heart of revitalization. You know, my daily prayer for each of you is to see... Parkway Presbyterian, become healthier and stronger, growing and reaching our community. If you too wish to see this happen, then it starts with you and with me. It starts with me growing in my relationship with Jesus and seeking his empowerment and strength, becoming more and more like him, and then seeking that for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and each one of you seeking it for yourselves and for each other. This week, uh, I think we'll be looking at one of the most important prayers in 1 Thessalonians. So let me start by giving you some historical context. In Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, Paul and Silas had been beaten in Philippi, where they were put in prison. Then they're told to leave the area, and they go to Thessalonica, and Paul sets out to share the gospel and plant churches. You know, he's not there for very long when the opposition gets very strong, and he has to leave them for a time. After that, Paul goes to Berea, to Athens, and then to Corinth with all the problems that they have there. It's then, it's at that point that he looks back at the churches he's planted before in which he's spent so little time in discipleship and training. And as he looks back, Paul is pained. But it's not his failures or his inadequacies that pain him. It's his deep concern for them that pains him. He writes, But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Then he later writes, so when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker. And and then he says, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. You see, what is on display here is that Paul is completely committed to the well-being of other Christians, especially new Christians. The desire burns inside of him to help them, to nurture them, to feed them spiritually, to make sure they're spiritually healthy and strong, to make sure that they have a solid foundation to their identity in Christ. And it's this that leads him to pray for them. See, Paul isn't happy just to teach and minister at a distance. He desires to serve people, to encourage and teach and nurture the faith of others. And it's this passion that shapes his prayers. And it is this model that's given to each of us. See, Paul models prayer that comes from a deep, passionate love and care for others that seeks their good. You see, Paul is not seeking praise or gratitude or even some kind of professional fulfillment. Paul prays and ministers out of real love. Now, let me uh, just say that I've come to believe that we use the term love much too loosely. We need to understand that there are Very different kinds of love. And so this is point one on your outline for those who are keeping notes in the middle of your bulletin there. And it's just the word love repeated over and over again. Paul displays a love for others that arises out of our knowledge of Christ's love, our security in his love, and his passionate love for others. You know, there is another kind of love a love that's uh, much more common. See, the world believes that it's real love, but it's really a self-centered kind of gut feeling. It's all about me and my needs. It's a love that desires to be with others because more often than not, they are the ones who love us. And they desire to be with us. They make us feel a greater sense of stability because when they're around, we belong. So our identity becomes becomes tied into being included in a group or tribe. A tribe of people who are like me and who like me. It's the kind of love that lures young people into gangs and into drugs. It's the kind of love that all politicians really thrive on. It's the kind of love that uh, that really is destructive. See, Paul models a very different kind of love. It's a self-emptying love, a self-sacrificing love, based on the knowledge and depths of Christ's sacrificial love for us. It has nothing to do with the lovability of others. See, Jesus is at the heart of Paul's identity of himself, and it is Jesus who is to become our identity. And his love is to become our model and our dynamic, in that it's to empower us in his Holy Spirit to love like he loves. Even in the church, how we identify ourselves, how we view ourselves, is often tied very closely to the kind of love we receive and express. Let me give you an example. When our uh, self-identity is bound up in the gifts and talents that we're blessed with, rather than in the giver of those gifts we end up finding our identity plan. instead of finding ourselves identifying with Jesus we find ourselves on our identity in the gifts like in playing music or preaching or acts of service we become we come to believe that I'm loved because of the gifts I have to bring to the table And what happens is we feel threatened when others express the gifts that God has given them because we feel like we might be replaced. This is the opposite of the kind of love for others that we're called to display. See, Paul, we must, like Paul, we're to live a life of love that celebrates when others are honored and respected, even in areas where we know we are gifted by God. See, Paul also wants to be with them for their own good, not for his. Just as Jesus came to be with us for our good, it's about self-denial. Serving is never about lording it over others, but it's about death to our self-interests. See, his prayer for them also comes from thanksgiving and delight. Do you see this? At the reports he's received of their faith, love, and perseverance in the face of persecution. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to the beginning of the letter, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. This is one of those things that sometimes I pray is said about me. He said, we always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers, We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to take a little aside for a moment. I want you to see another prayer of intercession. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Is another intercessory prayer that reflects love for God's people. It's a passage that you're probably familiar with, either having read it before or having seen some of these events played out in movies. It's the follow-up response after the golden calf incident. You remember the golden calf incident? I'd like to point out the broader context because it helps us understand an important point. God is trying to get across to his people. See, before this passage, God was giving instructions on how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, of course, central and vital, of vital importance to their very identity as the people of God. See, the tabernacle was the place where sinful, unholy people could come into the presence of a holy, all-powerful God. After this passage in chapter 33, we have those plans being put into place with the building of the tabernacle. So, sandwiched in the middle is Moses' prayer of intercession for the Israelites. Here we see the power of intercessory prayer. The surrounding context makes clear that the issue at stake is the building of this tabernacle. How can a holy and perfect God be present with a stubbornly sinful people without destroying them? Listen to God speaking here in verse 3 of chapter 33. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you along the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites you're a stiff-necked people, if I don't go with you even for a moment, I might just destroy you. Now, uh, Now we hear Moses intercede for his people. Then Moses said to him, That is to God. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked. Because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face may not be seen. You get this beautiful, remarkable picture we see? See, Moses is pressing and pressing as he intercedes with, before God, even brazenly asking God to display his very glory to him. In other words, he desires to know the full presence and power of God. And amazingly, God does it. As much as Moses can bear, first God proclaims his name there in verse 19, and then God passes by him, as Moses sees only his backside, getting a glimpse of the personhood of God. And then he instructs Moses in the renewal of the life-giving covenant. Now, uh, we're going to take another little aside. Does anybody remember a certain event that happens a centuries later when someone else's passes by? Anybody? Then you need to come to my class on the Gospel of Mark. Okay? Mark chapter 6, verses 47 through 50. Mark chapter 6, verses 47 through 50. Reads this way Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land, he that is Jesus. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. So shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Ego me in the Greek. In the Greek, also can be translated, "I am." Don't be afraid. Now, uh, let me just say, he wasn't uh, passing by them because he couldn't see them, or because he misjudged the wind direction. Mark is pointing back to Exodus chapter 33 and telling us that Jesus in his words and actions, is saying he is the same God who passed by Moses. So let me uh, get to the point I'm trying to make. Just as with Moses, just as with Paul, and this is point two on your outline, as we enter into intercessory prayer, out of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and all those that the Lord puts into our lives, we are often blessed with an even deeper knowledge of God, and a greater sense of His power, presence, and grace. Now, uh, let's get into Paul's prayer a little deeper. Go back to First uh, Thessalonians. Let's turn to verse nine of chapter three. The first thing we see is Paul's thanksgiving. Much like we saw last week, the words in the Greek display absolute delight. He is absolutely thrilled. Thanksgiving is absolutely essential to a healthy prayer life. And a healthy life with Jesus overall. So point three is this. Because Paul's prayer to God is public, it has the effect of encouraging others. See, he isn't just throwing around compliments in an attempt to flatter them. What Paul is doing is encouraging Christians by thanking God for his grace in their lives. He, in effect, is calling attention to their faithfulness. But then he's thanking God. So he's also humbling them. See, you can be both encouraged and humbled when we know that it's God alone who is to be praised for the signs of grace in our lives and in the lives of others. This is the standard way that Paul prays, by the way. And here it's for a model for us. You know, I wonder how different things would be if we spent time first actually thanking God in our prayers for others, then telling them, Matt, I thank God for the faithfulness you display in leadership. Tom, I thank God for your consistent kindness and thoughtfulness. Or Will, I thank God for how passionate and faithful you are to our youth. Or Tim, I thank God for the servant heart you consistently display at Parkway every week. Or Gregory, I thank God for your leadership in worship and music. Or Lynn, I thank God each and every day. The amazing wife you are, for how you support me with intelligence, energy, and kindness. See, we need a prayer life that thanks God for his people and tells our brothers and sisters what we thank God for. So the next blank is that prayer remembers God's grace at work in other believers. Look again with me at Paul's words in verse 9. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? He is saying that he has joy in the presence of our God because of the Thessalonians. The joy he he has is like the joy of the angels in heaven when a sinner repents and turns to Jesus. This is what it means to have joy in the presence of our God. It is a joy shared with God. It's having our values aligned with God's, even our emotions aligned with His. One scholar reworded Paul's prayer this way, and I think he hit it right on the, no, on the nail. I love you so much that when I see God's grace in your life, I am utterly elated. Indeed, your spiritual growth affords me so much joy in the presence of God that I am profoundly indebted to you. And I am impelled all the more to thank God for you. Now, um, while I uh, disagree with a lot of his theology, I am grateful to the late Emil Bruner for one important perspective. In fact, it's become the shortest way I can describe discipleship and growing in greater maturity. And in fact, in many ways, it's become the theme Of much of my ministry. In his book titled Faith, Hope, and Love, he writes about the way we experience life in three dimensions of time, the future, the present, and the past. Think of yourself as stationary. The future is coming toward you. The present is with you for just a fleeting second as it moves swiftly to become the past. The present, for most of us, is almost non-existent because it comes from the future so quickly and passes into the past so fast. The reality is that we're greatly affected by the future and the past. In fact, so affected by them that we find it difficult to live in the present because the future is so uncertain we live in anxiety about it. And because we failed so often in the past, we often live in guilt and remorse about it. And because remorse over the past and anxiety about the future are sometimes so overwhelming, we end up missing the present. The extreme of this is depression. Our minds and hearts are caught in the web of the future and the past. And by the way, this deeply affects our relationships. We were created by God to reflect his love, to live in healthy relationships, to be springs of living love, to give and to fill others with love. But in our sin nature, we are so burdened by the past and anxious about the future that we end up selfishly trying to protect ourselves. And it's Jesus, ultimately, who solves the problem. See, he changes our past by giving us real forgiveness because he bore the guilt of my sin in his own body on the cross. So, faith in Christ, who has died and rose again, frees us from the past. And not only has Jesus changed our past, he also guarantees our future. Jesus is our future. The words of the old hymn, I think, say it very well. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And so we come to our times of prayer filled with hope and certainty of the future, which was a result of a relationship with the living God. See, our past is forgiven by the one whose forgiveness counts the most, and our future is secured by that same almighty God. In Jesus Christ. And so, point five on your outline is I am free to live, not to overcome my past or to secure my future, but free to live in the present so that I might love as Jesus loves. And we're also free to pray out of love as Paul models, because we live in that love. Go to verses 10 and 11 now with me. He says it this way, night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. And then he changes the form of his prayer and refers to God in the third person. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. See, when he says night and day, he's referring to his regular times of prayer. And so he prays frequently and regularly. Paul prays that he might come to them to establish them more firmly in the Scriptures, thereby providing what they are lacking. And I want you to see something important here. He doesn't just pray that the faith of the Thessalonians might be strengthened. He prays that he himself might do it. He's like Isaiah after his vision of the Almighty. Here I am, send me. See, prayer isn't a substitute for serving. It's part of it. So point six is that pray that the Lord will strengthen the faith of others and if possible, He might do it through you. This is my calling as your interim pastor. And it's our calling together. You'll hear me say this multiple times. And it's a summary of what I've just told you from M.L. Bruner. And it's my summary of discipleship. And that is to live our lives as if Jesus died on the cross yesterday living in the day-to-day reality that I'm forgiven in Christ. And that He rose today, living with the joy of Christ's victory over death, sin, and the devil. And that He will return tomorrow, living with the urgency of the Gospel every day, that He might find me worthy of His calling. And that's point seven. Live and pray as if Christ died yesterday, rose today, and will return tomorrow. So the final two words on your outline are overflow and love. Look at Paul's words in verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. The Greek here is literally may the Lord enlarge you and make you abound in love. I want you for a moment to imagine a church filled with people that are continuously praying for each other in these ways. You know, I've served in churches where people fought over everything. From the color of the new carpet and paint, to the kind of music that's played, to who would put up Christmas wreaths. These were churches where this kind of prayer didn't happen. How about each of you this morning? Are you praying these kinds of prayers regularly? If not, will you join me in committing to praying these prayers for one another out of love for Christ and out of love for one another? And so I invite you today to rededicate yourself to interceding for one another daily. It's the kind of prayer life that it's needed if we're to see the kind of renewal and revitalization That we all want to be a part of. During uh, the week, Pastor Juan Carlos Ortiz had prepared a sermon to remind people of the importance of loving one another. He believed that God had truly guided him as he prepared each point and carefully selected each illustration. So he approached the pulpit with confidence and a, a certain boldness, but something happened about halfway from his seat to the pulpit. He heard a voice. Juan, yes, Lord, how many times have you preached on this passage in this church? I don't know, maybe a dozen. Then, just as Pastor Ortiz stepped into the pulpit, he was about to speak when he heard the same voice ask Did any of those sermons do any good? Pastor Ortiz stood frozen. He looked over the congregation and saw the people who he'd left to Christ, people who he had counseled during times of emotional turmoil, people who he had visited in the hospital at 2 a.m. as their loved one clung to life. He saw people who had heard the Christian message taught over and over again in Sunday school, small group Bible studies, and in his own sermons. They knew the words but they still struggled to live out the message. All thoughts evaporated from his mind. He stood frozen in time as the congregation waited to hear his words of inspiration. Finally, he said, love one another. Then he walked back to his seat and he sat down. The people all sat motionless. They didn't know how to handle this. Then Pastor Ortiz stood up and walked to the pulpit one more time and again said, love one another. And one more time, he returned to his seat. This time, heads began to turn from side to side. People looked at one another in questioning looks in their eyes. They appeared to be silently asking each other, what are we supposed to do now? Shoulders were shrugged. Eyebrows were raised. After waiting a few minutes, Pastor Ortiz again walked to the pulpit, positioned himself very deliberately and said, Love one another. And once again he returned to his chair. After a few minutes, a man stood up and said, Brothers and sisters, I think that I've understood what Pastor Ortiz is talking about. He's asking me to love you. As he said this, he pointed to a family seated next to him. How can I love you when I don't even know your name? The man proceeded to introduce himself and ask the family next to him questions in hopes of discovering ways in which he could express his love in actions and in prayer. Another man stood up and said, I also understand what Pastor Ortiz is saying. He wants me to love Carlo, who happened to be sitting three pews in front of him. So he left his pew, and approached Carlo to apologize, and the two were reconciled. Well, with this, the floodgates opened up. People got out of their pews and began to circulate. They began to ask each other what they could do for one another. And true reconciliation was happening as the congregation embraced in real unity. And the church was never the same after that worship service. I hope that might be true of today as well. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving Lord, we desperately need you each day. We cannot live the Christian life for one moment, without the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. So we need to pray. To pray that you might be at work in our hearts and in our minds and in the hearts and minds of our beloved brothers and sisters around us. That you might do your work in us and through us that you might indeed empower us for the lives that you have called us to live and the love that you have called us to show. So, Lord, we pray. We pray this morning that you will embolden us and empower us to pray for one another, to reconcile with one another, to ask, Lord, for your greater measure of love to be at work in our hearts and in the hearts of our brothers and sisters. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, now stand together for our final song.